0: Please note that this episode contains descriptions of violence that some people may find disturbing. Listener discretion is advised. This episode contains reenactments of actual news broadcasts from the events spoken about in today's show. My name is Oliver Lawrence. I spent over 12 years as a police officer serving in some of the harshest environments Australia has to offer. Now working as a senior investigator, security intelligence, and crisis management expert in London. I've had the chance to meet and speak with some of the brave men and women of law enforcement who found themselves at the front line of the world's most infamous investigations and global incidents. From the underworld of bikey gangs and the mafia to terrorist attacks of unthinkable magnitude. In this series I'll sit down with these brave men and women to hear their first hand accounts of these events and how they got there. Welcome to Protect and Serve.
1: came into sharp focus. In the UK, police identifying the suspect who killed two people on London Bridge. Police say they are investigating a suspected connection with a radical Republican organization, the new IRA. Freedom itself was attacked this morning by a faceless coward. And freedom will be defended.
0: Today's guest on Protect and Serve is a gentleman who not only joined a police force whereby he would find himself dealing with the everyday duties of your average police officer but also would face the constant threat of terrorist attacks directed at himself and his colleagues from the Irish Republican Army or the IRA. Roy McComb was a member of the Royal Ulster Constabulary, the brave men and women charged with the task of policing the streets of Northern Ireland. Roy joined the RUC in the 80s. During a time described as the Troubles, a volatile environment where bombs, murders and kidnappings were almost a daily occurrence. Roy's story can only be described as incredible and it's our pleasure to welcome him to Protect and Serve. So joining me uh, this morning on Protect and Serve is a gentleman that spent over 35 years uh, in law enforcement in both Northern Ireland and across the UK in the National Crime Agency and has also sat on some incredible inquiries, uh, in uh, which we'll go over during the show. So it's my absolute pleasure to welcome to the podcast Protect and Serve, Roy McComb. Roy, good morning. Welcome.
1: Ollie, good morning to you. Pleasure to be with you, sir.
0: Listen, Roy, I was looking into your bio and it's absolutely fascinating and like every good detective and investigator, you want to start at the beginning. And I wanted to talk about your experiences when you first joined the police in 1984, your training and then your graduation and what that was like for you.
1: Well, I joined, as you said, in 1984 at the Royal Ulster Constabulary in Northern Ireland. Uh, It was in the middle of what's called the Troubles, so there was chaos and murder and mayhem. All around us, uh, my older brother had been in the Royal Ulster Constabulary a number of years. He was probably my motivation for joining, probably because he talked about the real sense of camaraderie and being part of a team. Uh, so I joined, uh, graduated in the uh, the late uh, the winter time of two thousand of nineteen eighty four. First station was in uh, in West Belfast uh, in January of nineteen eighty five. And I remember my first day, which was one of those indelible moments where as a new guy arriving in, in work, you think, well, what's this going to be like? And it was as far removed as what the brochure said uh, as was possible. We used to patrol in, in three vehicles. So there was a there was a military vehicle joined uh, to police armored vehicles. So we we were a three-vehicle patrol. Uh, and I remember my sergeant saying to me on the first day that the vehicle that I was in, which was the third vehicle, was often referred to as the rocket truck. And, of course, I thought, well, what does that mean, the rocket truck? And he explained (laughs) that the provisional IRA used the first vehicle to line up the use of the RPG-7 rocket. They didn't want to kill the soldiers, which was the second vehicle, and they always aimed for the third vehicle, the rocket truck, which, of course, was the vehicle that I was now sitting in. And I busily thought, now nah, I don't remember seeing that on the recruitment brochures. There was no, there was no mention of that in the, in the recruitment conversation I'd had with the, the, the recruitment sergeant." But yet here I was uh, in the, uh, the aforementioned rocket truck, and um, it happened that about a, I think a year earlier we had lost a colleague who had been murdered and another colleague very badly injured in a rocket mm-hmm. attack about a half a mile from the station. So it was a very real. Uh, conversation he wasn't being flippant he wasn't being he wasn't no attempted humor on at that point uh, he was simply drawing to the attention of a really green young fella that this was the reality of policing this particular part of Belfast so welcome to the RUC you're now in the rocket truck
0: is there do you know having graduated from the police myself into what I described and what was described to me just as a patrol vehicle How do you prepare yourself, knowing that when you do, obviously, when you went into the academy, you knew there were problems on the outside. And obviously, you were probably trained to say, listen, when you go out there, it's going to be difficult. There's going to be some really unique challenges. How do you, as a young man, prepare for that? And how do you get over the anxieties and the fears of being in something they call the rocket truck, which means that you could be the victim of an attack at very at, at a moment's notice. Well,
1: I suppose I was fortunate with my older brother being still living at home. He was able to give me some sort of advice and guidance uh, about the reality. He worked in a, in, a, in a different part of Northern Ireland and uh, it had a different experience, different exposure. But from the very outset, you, you know, you were joining something which you knew was in the front line of, of terrorist attacks, and the training throughout was always driven by personal safety, personal security. I mean, where we, where we did the training, which was in the southeast of Northern Ireland in a little town called Enniskillen, which had been a, a military camp uh, originally. And very few people lived in that particular town. So a lot of people left on a Friday afternoon to go home for the weekend. And uh, there was always a bit of a police convoy of people leaving the town to go to the different parts of the province. But the simple things like leaving on a Friday was actually part of a coordinated military-like patrol. So you had to leave at a certain point. You had to take certain routes. You had to be, you know, traveling in in, in a convoy. There was a police escort. So there was nothing normal about leaving the training on a Friday and, and, you know, heading home for the weekend. It was everything from the very moment you joined uh, and for the rest of your life was driven by a sense of personal security. I I mean, I remember when I went to my first station... (laughs) There was a little bit of, of, of psychology around making sure people understood their their personal their personal security issues. So in the, the briefing room that we had, there was all the, the montages of terrorist suspects. There was briefings about crime trends. There was all the stuff you would expect in, in, a, in a busy police station with the mm. added issues around what the police in Northern Ireland dealt with. But I remember seeing um, on the middle of this big briefing table a book. And it was like a sort of an encyclopedia. And the front cover simply said, all you ever wanted to know about sex, but were too afraid to ask. Well, when I was 19, <laughs> so, you know, what did I know about those things? Of course, you know, everybody raced to see what was inside it. And what was inside it was a briefing about how to keep yourself safe from terrorist attack. It had absolutely nothing to do with sex. (laughs) It was all images of undercover booby traps, about sniper rifles, about personal security. And of course, because everybody was captured by the front page of everything you wanted to know about sex, there was a desperation of trying to flick through every page to make sure that you hadn't missed anything. Of course, it was absolutely nothing to do with the the aforementioned subject. But but it's a really clever way of thinking Mm. this is something you're going to have to live with from uh, you know from the moment that you you know you've joined the present and, and and as a as a constable and in fact as a sergeant the shirts that you wore were green which you know even in the 1980s the the fashion sense was never about people wearing green shirts so the only people who wore green shirts were members of the ruc so you couldn't launder them in a sense of hanging them out in the washing line because that was a dead giveaway mm-hmm. that you were a member of the ruc so it's really simple things that you know, you maybe don't think of uh, you know outside Northern Ireland became very important because all you needed to do was make one slip up and your personal security might have been compromised. So it was a very vertical learning curve to go from being a you know a schoolboy to being an armed police officer with a proverbial target on your back. But you know, you had to learn quickly.
0: In the heart of a staunchly Republican border town, the Union flag mourns for nine policemen and women killed by the provincial ira
1: here we see an attack of a familiar kind indiscriminate uh, it happened that only police officers were killed men and women catholics and protestants but that might easily not have been so
0: nine weeks ago the ira tried to kill policewoman olivia collins in Derry. i, I often talk about in my episodes with uh, other law enforcement uh, specialists that the unsung heroes around us are our families that support us through our long careers in terms of the trials and tribulations of policing what you know how do you how do you support family when they know that you're going to fortified police stations and that you're dealing with threat all the time and the atmosphere that that creates in the family home and the risk taking that goes on how do you support family members through those risks do they just trust that your judgment is sound
1: yeah I mean that's a really good question I think um, once again because my older brother had joined the police mm. my my parents and my younger brother were were somewhat alive to the issues whenever I joined but then when you you know when I when I got married my my wife would would always say look I didn't you know I married you and I had to accept the fact that that part of your Entire life was around policing. So I had to accept the the responsibilities of of living with someone who who lived under that sort of that that cloud. But you know, small things like, you know, when and how you opened the door, how you answered the telephone, who drove which vehicles, how did you check your vehicles, how did you describe the employment of your brother or or son in this case? My father was a painter and decorator. And uh, I'd worked with him uh, during sort of school summer holidays, and so I, ha- I knew a little bit about the trade, and was able to blag my way through conversations if anybody ever asked, which um, mm. was was always helpful. So, so there was always a part of a Jekyll and Hyde type life where you had to pretend that you were something entirely different, only for the purposes of of staying staying safe. So, uh, but you know, everybody then had to adopt, and, and I have to say, my 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 family. My, my parents and, and my wife and family now just went like ducks to water on, on, on remembering and knowing how to live the lie, as it were, which is an awful thing to do. You know, for, mm. I mean, for years, my, my, my children wondered why we could never rescue the cat that was underneath my car. You know, you were checking it for the undercar booby trap. And oh, of course, the kids were saying, well, what are you doing, Dad? Well, I'm trying to find, I think there's a cat underneath this. And of course, there never was a cat because we just didn't have cats. We were trying to find magnetic boxes that had uh, semtex in it.
0: What were the ramifications for some of your colleagues that did slip up or make mistakes? What's the, uh, what's well, the worst uh, case scenario?
1: In, well, worst case scenario, they end up being killed. It's as simple as that. In worst case scenario, they were, they, you know, patterns, the, the lifestyle of doing the same thing over and over and over again got you identified. People that were careless who went to the same pubs, people who talked openly, people who were careless about their personal security in, in many, many other ways. They were identified uh, and, and they were targeted. Worst case scenario, they were murdered. Best case scenario, if you can call it, is they were given a warning because intelligence had been picked up. And routinely, people were being moved out of their homes in the dead of night and told that if they don't move house now, that they would be the target of a terrorist attack in the coming day. So overnight, a delivery vehicle would arrive, take everything they, they owned or they could carry, move out of a house and they were shipped off to some other part of, of Northern Ireland. I remember driving into Belfast one day off duty and I parked my vehicle in a place that I'd never parked previously. And just as I got out of my vehicle, this guy shouted over to me, hello, constable McComb. And I looked around <laughs> and it was a guy that I had arrested six, eight months earlier for something, you know, quite, you know, drink driving or whatever, but he was shouting in the middle of Belfast you know, name, rank, and I'm standing beside my private vehicle with my personalised, obviously my number plate. And that's a compromise. So you Hmm. immediately have to step into alerting someone, telling someone what has happened. So you get issued with false number plates. So I'm driving around the next day with the same car, but with bogus number plates on because, you know, because some fool decided to simply shout my name, rank, and number. You had to do simple things like you apply for your car insurance. And they ask you your employment. So what do you put down? And because my father's background allowed me to put down painting contractor, I built up that sort of legend for being for being a painting contractor. But there were some people who simply put down police officer, and that became really foolish. I mean, I know we had a we had a private health scheme in the police through BUPA. BUPA provided a sort of discounted health scheme for people in the in the police. But what the terrorists did was simply put people into the organization under the guise of being staff members. And and what they did is simply access the entire personal database of people who joined the BUPA scheme through the police. And wow. so, you know, no matter what you did, there was always terrorists trying their best mm. to, to find ways in which they could compromise you. So, you know, it was a it was a constant, constant game keeping yourself protective and safe. But you could never you could never drop your guard. I mean, even now, here we are. Well, I mean, I've, I've left the police uh, eight years, uh, there's been ceasefires from 1994, you know, so you would think that all of that has long since passed, but you know, I think I'll go to my grave constantly thinking about personal security.
0: This was an absolutely appalling act of brutality, a totally callous murder. We were working hard to build momentum back into the process to find a lasting settlement for people in Northern Ireland. The pressures of policing in what one would consider to be a normal environment are often can be pretty intense from trying to prevent uh, burglary spikes to try and stop vehicle thefts, robberies, etc. I would imagine that there would be a completely different level of pressure, especially within the RUC when the mainland bombing campaign really got intense in terms of, you know, the Brighton bomb attack, the Docklands, what sort of knock-on pressure or what sort of knock-on feelings did that have to you as operational police officers in Northern Ireland?
1: Well, it was a constant pressure because, you know, there were very few days that you didn't see something either on the news or in internal briefings that something had happened. And it was everywhere. You know, there was very few places spared the the difficulties and the trauma of terrorism. And of course, when you see then these these major incidents happening in England, particularly, um, you think, well, you know, if if, if terrorists here can smuggle a three and a half thousand pound bomb into, into the Docklands, you know, why how could it possibly be safe in parts of Belfast or, or other parts of Northern Ireland? Because yeah. they they for, for many reasons the provisional IRA particularly had a uh, I hesitate to make this sound like I'm giving them praise, but they had a professionalism. You know, they had a capability. They were they were capable. They had built up a, uh, a sort of professional terrorist quality that that has been copied all around the world. And they, they, the the Provisional IRA uh, exchanged information with terrorist groups around the world, so they were definitely in the in the premier league of terrorists there had been a warning but harrods could find no bomb inside
0: a couple of cars which were almost in pieces and some badly injured people and a couple of people who obviously dead.
1: you know huge bomb goes off in in london simply reminded people back in northern ireland of the capabilities of this organization and that really there was nowhere you could consider yourself safe so when you lived under a constant set of of um of pressure because of what could happen to you or your colleagues and of course when you're patrolling with with colleagues you're almost as strong only as the weakest link so if people Hmm. were were good at patrolling if they were smart if they were tactically aware then you know you presented less of a target if if you were working with a crew that was not as tactically aware you actually became more of a target because you were seen to be slack and a little bit unprofessional so you know, you were constantly having to think, are we as good as we can be? And how can we improve our, our tactics? So it wasn't, I mean, I remember as a young police officer in the middle of the night, my inspector saying that he wanted us to do a foot patrol. Now a foot patrol in those days in that part of Belfast was just unheard of, but he was trying mm. to be innovative to do what we would recognize as simply normal policing. Now, no matter what we tried to do, it was abnormal because you were carrying a rifle, you were carrying a handgun, you're wearing body armor, you're you know you had a sort of a QRF vehicle close by. So there was nothing really normal. But he was trying to bring about that sense of normality, so that the people in the area who really just wanted to get on with their lives could see that we weren't a military organization; we were actually a police service mm. trying to deliver a, a policing function and and sort of breaking out of the shell of. Armored vehicles and being on the street a bit more uh, was a real effort, um, you know, to try to appear normal. And it was filled with the normality. You know, there were still burglaries, car accidents, there was domestic disputes, there was kids going missing. All of the things that you happen in in every policing environment. All of that happened. It just happened with the backdrop of a terrorist threat. which just complicated things.
0: It's fascinating because I think the community have always yearned to see their local police. You know, ultimately they want to be able to see them, they want to be able to interact with them. It gives that feeling of safety and reassurance. And obviously it's fascinating to see that you are trying to still achieve those core functions of policing while dealing with quite a significant challenge in the Troubles. The general theme of most of our episodes, which I pick up on, is is ordinary people doing extraordinary tasks and work, and that really kind of rings home to police officers, male, female, in Northern Ireland during that period. Is is that something that you often reflect on in terms of the people that you are working with?
1: Yeah, I, I, at the moment, I'm I'm providing policing advice in a in a UK project in Africa,
0: and I made that very point to
1: a community group recently, who were who are setting up a community uh, engagement program. And I simply made the point that this police officer who was beside me is simply a civilian with a uniform and with Mm. particular authority and powers. And and so I think you, you expect, or there's maybe this, this, this mindset that people are put through the police training and suddenly have superpowers, but they're not, you know, you cut them, they bleed, you hit them on the head, they fall down, you put them in an exposed vulnerable position. They feel the emotion of that. And, um, I think I think policing is better today in supporting people and, and enabling them to be ready or at least to be able to deal with stuff like that. But in the nineteen eighties, uh, you know, it was very much a an experiential environment where you you know you picked up and you learned the things. Uh, in the in the early part of my my probationary period, we we were exposed to a uh, an, an occupational health unit, which I think was the first one in UK policing, and the the doctor who presented to us. Uh, who was advertising what they what they did, said, you know, we had a colleague recently talk to us about just not being able to sleep. And over a course of a couple of sessions, when the police officer was saying, you know, I've not really done anything that's different. I've just been doing my normal duty, bum, bum, bum. Actually, the doctor said over the course of a number of sessions, he relayed dozens of incidents that he'd been involved in, from, you know, fatal car accidents to, you know, caught deaths to terrorist attacks when he was subject of the terrorist attack or responding to bomb attacks. And, you know, he took that almost as the normal. This is what I'm expected to deal with because I'm a police officer. And, of course, that's not normal behavior for anybody to deal with. And, uh, you know, they quickly got to the root of the problem of why he wasn't sleeping because Mm -hmm. he'd been exposed to just so much stuff absolutely concur with your point only that this this is you know an an extraordinarily difficult job done by ordinary people who are stepping up to the plate
0: hi and thanks for listening to protect and serve if you're enjoying the episode please consider giving us a rating and a review so other people can find our show and don't forget to hit follow so you'll be notified as soon as the next episode is available now let's get back to the episode You've spent um, what would appear to be quite a short period of time at the lower ranks of policing. And most of your career, I think you'd agree, has been in some sort of managerial position. You rose to the rank in in Northern Ireland to chief superintendent where you were looking after and and, and overseeing the investigations of organised crime. What changes for you in terms of dynamic from being led to leading what are the significant changes for a difficult period of hi- in history
1: i'm a fan of the idea that you grow into a rank that you don't appear on day one and say, you know here i am i'm you know i passed a qualifying exam or interview that i'm suddenly special that that that, that you've become you know omnipotent in some way i mm-hmm. think you grow into it mm-hmm. uh i remember being promoted to sergeant and of course that was a tremendous sense of uh, personal achievement but you know the uh, the first day that I was a sergeant, my my constable said to me, "You know, here you go, make your first decision as a sergeant." Uh, and what they did is they handed me their overtime form, and uh, so you were you were <laughs> humbled immediately from the sense of what well, you know. Here I am, I'm a supervisor, I'm a leader, I'm a manager. Nah, you're not. You're, you know, just approve my overtime, fella, and uh, you know, be <laughs> on your way. And 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 that was a humbling moment of of you know really. If you think you're special, well, you're not. So I think I look back on on each of my my fortunate promotions and think, you know, could I have done things differently? Absolutely. The first fortnight after I was promoted, I went to the promotion course that, that the police put on at that point. It finished on a Friday, and on the Sunday, the, the provisional IRA bombed the uh, the Remembrance Sunday parade in Enniskillen, where I was working at the time. And you Wow. Know, Uh, you know, almost a dozen people were murdered.
0: Yesterday on Remembrance Sunday caused horror, shock and revulsion. The police were never in any doubt that this was an IRA bombing. It's taken more than 24 hours for the IRA to concoct their statement.
1: Had I not been on my training program, I would have been at that. And I've often reflected what would I have actually done had I been there that day and, you know, taken... You're wearing the the badges of of a supervisor. You know, would I have been, would I have made the difference? Could I have stepped up? Could I have been? So all of that has reflected, uh, I have reflected on many times that, you know, you're expected to do certain things. I think as I went through different ranks, I became more comfortable with the idea of leadership. I became more comfortable with the idea that you were expected to take certain positions. What really stayed with me throughout was the idea of being A standard bearer of setting the standards and the behavior of how people should and were expected to behave. Um, And so I held myself to quite a high standard of of personal behavior in order to set, I hope, an example to colleagues that this is what, you know, if it was good enough for me, then it really should be good enough for you. Um, Simple things like, you know, the actual physical personal appearance of did you look like a smartly dressed police officer? Did you behave properly? Did you speak to people with, Respected, you know, did you always respect their their rights? All of those things were things that I tried to do to set that example. And then, as you moved into sort of more senior ranks, you know, you begin to think about organizational responsibilities, not just individual team responsibilities. So, you're setting not just team uh, standards, but you're setting organizational responsibilities. As the the head of organized crime in Northern Ireland, you were setting an entire organizational strategy for how you would deal with the threats of organized crime.
0: In a previous episode, we were talking with uh, Wesley Wong, former senior guy in the uh, FBI. And he talked about, um, at the time, one of the towers was collapsing and he was inside one of the buildings. And he wasn't afraid to say that at that moment in time, he felt tremendously scared, his legs begin to get wobbly, and he didn't think he was gonna get out alive. But he then thought to himself, listen, I don't represent me here. I represent the FBI. It's important that I say strong so that when people look at me, they see an organization which is being led and being championed by an individual that is going to show resilience and get through this situation, irrespective of what's being thrown at me. Again, it's funny what you think about times of stress. I thought, Wes, you don't just represent yourself. You also represent the FBI. And uh, if you go down into the fetal position and start whimpering, all these tough firemen and cops are going to say what has happened to the fbi and i remember thinking that and i remember saying to myself you can be scared to death you can be terrified but you have to stay upright was there a time in any of your leadership positions where inside you were struggling with particular issues that you were trying to deal with but made sure that you showed people on the outside it's often the comparative of the duck on water paddling like crazy underneath but calm as anything on the surface was there ever a period of time where that where you were challenged in that in that regard
1: yeah I, I, when i when i joined the national crime agency uh in in september of 2014 within i think two days i was told that i would be leading an investigation into corruption uh, allegations around the murder of stephen lawrence And, you know, Stephen Lawrence murder is such an iconic uh, and and traumatic event, principally, of course, for his family and his his friend. But actually for policing, you know, it's that sort of um, hole in the heart of policing that people go to and say, you know, that's when policing failed the Lawrence family. And to a large extent, they absolutely did. And it has set the standard for how policing uh, needed to improve. And here I was, you know, very, very new into a new organization being told, you know, you're up, you're going to lead this investigation into corruption. Of course, corruption had been that sort of whispered wind that had gone through the Stephen Lawrence investigation Mm. from the outset. And suddenly the spotlight was now on me to say, you're in charge of this investigation. To some extent, uh, there wasn't really a handbook as to how you're supposed to deal with that. So that sense of, you know, gulp, <laughs> this is this is now on me. I have to do this. You know, I'm still busy learning how to be part of this new organization. I feel I have certain professional qualities that would help me do this job. But this is going to be such a monumental job to try to do that. You know, do I feel personally ready? And you get that sense of, wow, this is going to be a real challenge. But your job is at that point to step forward and say, OK. And I've always been struck by Um, If you remember the the original Men in Black film, which, uh, Hmm. as corny as it might be, the opening scene has Tommy Lee Jones stepping out of a vehicle and saying to the sort of border patrol officers, the words which I've often thought are are applicable to leadership, which is, we'll take it from here. Hmm. It's just that simple line of... We'll take it from here. And there's a point when there's chaos and, and you know bedlam happening or the real mountain to climb. There's you know, there's challenges after challenge after challenge. And I often thought that leadership is about that simple statement of stepping forward and said, okay, we've got this, we'll take it from here. Uh, and that's not to say at that point that you have all of the answers, but that's you stepping in and saying, Okay, this is now my job to lead. I'm gonna do the very best I can. So on me. Yeah, but there are moments when you think, gulp, you know, how, how am I going to do this particular job? But your inner professionalism I think, steps forward and you have to then say, OK, we'll take it from here.
0: You're listening to part one of my episode with Roy McCoom. In part two, we dive into the world of high-pressure investigations.
1: How are the forensic examples going to be worked through? How do we find evidence that connects each of these three people to the one vehicle that has the 500-pound bomb? And there was a focus on what are the police going to do? You know, are the police going to mess this up? That was zeroed in on yours truly. So the old expression of failure was not an
0: option really came true. Next time on Protect and Serve. Protect and Serve is a Mash Pumpkin production, hosted by Oliver Lawrence. Research and questions by Oliver Lawrence and Robert winstanley Stanley. Produced, edited, and sound designed by Jack Lawrence. This podcast is part of the Acast Creator Network.